Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin filed manslaughter charges yesterday against Troy McAllister, a parolee accused of killing two pedestrians on New Year's Eve while driving drunk. The case has sparked intense criticism of Boudin, including a recall effort for failing to charge McAllister with a new crime despite repeated arrests in recent months. The controversy caps the former public defender's first year in office and spotlights his contentious relationship with law enforcement. We'll talk with Boudin about the case, his progressive agenda for criminal justice in San Francisco, and what his office achieved in the past year. That's next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. In his first year in office, San Francisco's progressive district attorney, Chesa Boudin, ended cash bail and filed the first ever homicide charges in San Francisco against a police officer and reduced the city's jail population by 40 percent to prevent a COVID-19 outbreak. He also became the object of a recall campaign, and the city's police officer association is calling for an independent oversight panel into his charging decisions. That's after a parolee on the streets, despite being arrested for several crimes in recent months, allegedly killed two pedestrians on New Year's Eve while driving drunk. Welcome, Chase Boudin. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Michael. First thing I want to say is uh, you have achieved a good deal in your first year, and I don't want to give short shrift to that, and I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you've achieved uh, and innovated. But there's been so much attention to what occurred, the tragedy that occurred and resulted in the death of these two pedestrians, Elizabeth Platt, who was 60, and Hanako Abe, who was 27. And I know you're meeting with the families and you have talked to the families, but there are serious questions and there's a narrative in this. And I want to hear your narrative and I want listeners to have the opportunity to hear your narrative. Um, let me just give a little bit of background. This was someone who was on parole and essentially there was a plea deal. He got time served and uh, was released. And there were a number of, uh, well, arrests after he was released. 
So at this point, it would seem in many people's minds like the uh, prosecution would be forthcoming on all of that, but he went to a parole supervisor. So I guess I have to ask you initially about your responsibility in this and about the parole supervisor being seen to be the adequate or proper authority here. First of all, Michael, this is, as you pointed out, a terrible and devastating tragedy. I met yesterday for well over an hour with Mrs. Abe, the mother of one of the two victims. And it was unbelievably difficult. I meet with victims of crime as a regular part of my job and the meetings are never easy, but I have to tell you yesterday's meeting was unusually challenging for many reasons. And the reality is in any homicide, we cannot undo the harm that was caused. And that's something, it's a weight that I carry as the district attorney every single day in every single decision that I make in every single case. It is devastating. And I know that only the families of these two women truly appreciate the depths of pain and loss and suffering. But everybody in my office feels it. And I know that countless people in San Francisco feel the pain and share the grief. The sad thing, as I said, is we can't undo the harm. But what we're focused on is three things going forward. First of all, supporting the families through the grief. Second of all, holding Mr. McAllister, the man we believe caused this harm, accountable for what he did. And third, bringing together all the different law enforcement agencies who were involved in supervising or policing or holding Mr. McAllister accountable and looking at what we did, what we could have done, what we should have done, and ensuring that going forward, we don't have agencies operating in silos, but that we have better communication. I know that there are things we all wish we would have done differently. It's certainly true for me and for many of my staff. And I take responsibility for the decisions that we made or that we didn't make. I also know that there were many other agencies who, had they done something differently, might have also prevented this tragedy. And yesterday I had the opportunity to speak with Chief Scott multiple times, with Sheriff Miyamoto, with Chief Fletcher of the Adult Probation Department, as well as with the head of the Division of Parole. And all of us agreed that we need to sit down soon, this week, ideally, and come to better terms about how our teams can work together. We cannot do our jobs in silos and no law enforcement agency on its own has the tools or the ability or the responsibility for every aspect of public safety. As Chief Scott said in his tweet and in statements to the press about this tragedy, every single law enforcement agency has to take responsibility for their decisions. How much of that responsibility that goes to you as the district attorney? I mean, initially, you talked about the culpability of the San Francisco police and the Daly City police and the parole office. Uh, but your office, and I understand what you're saying about that feeling of grief in your office and concern about this and so forth. But there are many, specifically Tony Montoya, head of the police union, who are saying you're responsible. Uh, you didn't prosecute and should have prosecuted. Let's be clear about Tony Montoya and the POA. They are, um, the leadership of the POA and Tony Montoya have been a really toxic part of San Francisco politics since way before I ever even ran for office. And they've been accusing me 
of horrific things and lies and spreading dishonesty, not just about me, but about virtually everybody in public life in San Francisco progressive politics for years. It's nothing new. Um, you mentioned talk about recall. That started before I was even in office. And much of the misinformation about this case is being spread intentionally by Tony Montoya and by the POA. Now, they can point fingers and they can try to get me to point fingers back. But as Chief Scott said, every law enforcement agency has to take responsibility for what they did or didn't do. And in my case, to get to your question, Michael, of course there are things in hindsight that we could have done differently. That's true in every single case where someone who's had prior law enforcement contact uh, is involved in a serious crime. We don't have a crystal ball. And the district attorney's office in San Francisco handles thousands and thousands of cases. Just to put a precise concrete number on it, this year, in, in less than a year since I took office, we have filed over 4,300 adult criminal cases. And we've seen thousands more. When someone is on probation or on parole, we often rely on those agencies. It's a question of efficiency. It's a question of resources. And it's a question of prioritizing violent crimes. When Mr. McAllister was arrested earlier this year, his arrests were nonviolent. There was not a single contact that he had this year that was a DUI, that involved weapons, or that involved any crime of violence. Given those circumstances, it was standard practice in my office way before I was sworn in and not limited to San Francisco. This is true across the state to defer to the primary supervising agency. In this instance, it was parole. And parole has tools and resources and options available to them far more nuanced and individualized than simply filing a new criminal case. And we need to be honest about what filing a new criminal case in those first contacts he had this year after his parole would have done. Charging someone with a new nonviolent offense rarely results in ongoing incarceration absent a parole revocation. We trust parole and we continue to trust parole because they know the individuals they supervise and they have the tools and the expertise to do it. Most district attorneys, not just me, not just in San Francisco, regularly refer people who are arrested for nonviolent crimes to the supervising agency. And that's what we did here. But there's a couple things that went wrong along the way. First of all, December 20th, Mr. McAllister was arrested. Nobody notified his parole agent. That was a critical miscommunication between agencies. And I'm not pointing the finger because there were multiple different people who could have done it. San Francisco Police Department General Order 6.12 requires that San Francisco officers or investigators making an arrest of a parolee refer that person to or notify the supervising agency. It didn't happen here. But you know what? My staff could have and should have done it too. But and going me, forward, excuse me, let me interrupt immediately. Mr. It's our Dis policy to always communicate directly with parole in these sorts of cases. Uh, I'm sorry, I want to interrupt you here, Mr. District Attorney, because is there, it's not the responsibility of the parole people to make charging decisions, is it? It's the prosecutor's. No, no, you're right. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, but there's an important distinction, and I think it's been lost in the conversation. So I appreciate you uh, honing in on that point, Michael. It, it is absolutely not the de decision of 
the parole officer or the parole agency to make charging decisions. That is my responsibility and my office's responsibility. But it is the parole agent's responsibility to decide whether or not to file a parole revocation petition. And that petition can hold someone in custody for up to 180 days. It can hold someone in custody, even absent a hearing, for up to 10 days, a period referred to as flash incarceration. Um, or parole agents who have personal knowledge of the individual they're supervising in a way that my staff are prohibited from having. We can't talk directly with someone accused of a crime. Um, they may decide that a referral to a drug treatment program is the appropriate intervention. And when we file new criminal charges against someone, they have a presumption of innocence. They have a right to a jury trial. And as I said, on nonviolent charges, they are presumed to be released. They have a right to liberty. Now, someone who's on parole or probation may not have that same right. But in order to detain someone in custody pending trial on a nonviolent charge, we have to have a parole revocation filed. And it is longstanding practice in San Francisco for decades and uh, across the state in most jurisdictions that the decision about whether or not to file a parole revocation petition is made by the parole officer, not by the district attorney. So yes, we could have filed charges. And if we'd had a crystal ball, of course we would have. But there is no reason to think that had we filed charges against Mr. McAllister uh, on his prior recent arrests, it would have been, um, it would have prevented this tragedy from occurring. We're talking, if you've just joined us, to San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. We're coming up on a minute break here, but I know many of you would like to weigh in here. We're going to talk about more things, certainly, that are under the aegis and purview of the District Attorney's Office. But if you want to join us, you can do that now, and you can give us a call at our toll-free number. We invite you to do that. The number to call is 866-733-6786. Again, join the program by dialing in at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Again, we're talking to San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin. We'll take your calls and we'll also uh, take your emails and we'll also go into other things in addition to this, as I said earlier. But certainly there has been a great deal of spotlight on this and I know... You as listeners, many of you are concerned and want to weigh in here or ask questions, so please feel free to join us on this or other things that we'll be touching on in the course of this hour with the district attorney. You're listening to Forum on KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking with District Attorney Chase Boudin, who's District Attorney of San Francisco. And I'm going to go to some comments and calls uh, before we go to other topics. As I said, there's been a great deal of concern about these two deaths, these two tragic deaths that occurred on New Year's Eve, uh, with a parolee who many people feel should have been prosecuted. Uh, and let's uh, actually go, if I could, Chase Boudin, to a couple comments first before I take a call. 
Uh, these comments, I think, are um, apropos of what we've been talking about. Josh says there's a perception that Mr. Boudin is more of an advocate for people who break the law than the general citizenry of San Francisco. Granting that the criminal justice system has systemic biases, how can you counter that perception, especially in the light of this recent tragedy? I'm really sorry to hear that that's the perception some people have. I know that the POA has contributed to it. Uh, they tried to make that the perception even before I was elected. As I said, I'm running my office as well as I can, and I'm working as hard as I can under historically difficult circumstances. Nobody predicted or anticipated the kinds of challenges that 2020 would bring us. And yet we managed to transition my staff to electronic procedures, electronic case filing and discovery and court appearances. We managed to file 4,300 new criminal cases. And I personally took a murder case that had been languishing for years to a grand jury and secured an indictment to move that case one step closer to trial. I'm volunteering for shifts in court to handle arraignments and other calendar procedures. I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm personally doing the work to keep our cases moving forward and to help make San Francisco safer for all of us. Well, one of the biggest uh, challenges that you face, and I'm going to go some more calls and emails here uh, on this, but uh, I did want to talk with you about the fact that uh, I know you want to move things more toward the grand jury uh, system or use the grand jury system more because you've got this mountain of cases. I mean, clearly about 6,000. There's one homicide case I think was languishing for about a decade. So That's exactly right. Uh, you've got to to streamline this somehow. I mean, it's just uh, an impossible mountain uh, just in the number of cases that are still open, 6,000 cases open. I don't even know how you even begin to approach that. It's overwhelming. And the fact of the matter is, if you're going to use the grand jury, of course, then you get into secretive uh, natures of the grand jury and the way they operate and no defense attorneys. But uh, we can talk about that. I think I want to get to some more of our uh, listeners' responses to uh, the incident uh, and tragedy that occurred on New Year's Eve. Let me get Tom on next. Tom, join us. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I want to say I applaud the efforts of the new DA. Sounds like Tom so Amiano, is it? Yeah, couple with his voice. Who else could it be? Um, Hi, Tom. Anyway, hey, Tom. I, I, understand, I understand the systemic obstacles, the PLA being one of them, uh, for, for years elected wanted the POA endorsement. And if you notice lately, uh, people are walking away from that. Um, I have another area I'd like to mention, and that is the scandal that has happened at City Hall, all the complicity, the PUC, the planning department, etc. What role do you see uh, the DA can have in investigating this scandal and, and coming to some remedy rooting out the institutionalization of it and i'll take my answer on the air okay we thank you for that tom i mean a longtime supervisor in san francisco jason thank, thank you tom and thank you for your leadership in san francisco now and always um it's a great question and i know that when we talk about crime and we talk about accountability the system does a really bad job remembering the victims in every single case there's someone who's harmed and when you talk about corruption, as, as you mentioned, Tom, all of us in San Francisco are victims of corruption. And we've seen this year a really staggering proportion of scandals in City Hall. And it's something that um, everyone in law enforcement, I think, needs to step up and do more on. I have a very small team working on those kinds of cases. Our 
primary focus is uh, more traditional criminal cases brought to us by the San Francisco Police Department, burglaries, robberies, drug sales. Um, those are the cases that take up most of our resources. But we do have a small dedicated team investigating public integrity issues. And I can tell you that um, they are in many ways outmanned and outgunned by the uh, U.S. attorney that has been working on this case evidently for a number of years with resources far beyond anything that the city uh, allows us to spend on these kinds of cases. Uh, we would certainly like to do more and it takes resources. It takes investigators. It takes wiretaps. It takes um, cooperating witnesses. And those are some of the things that we need. But let me be really concrete. As the district attorney, I have two primary investigative tools. One of those is a grand jury. As Michael mentioned, it's not just for indictments, it's also for investigations. Because of COVID, I was unable to convene a single grand jury this year until November. In other words, my first 10 months, one of my two primary investigative tools was off the table. The second tool that I have is, is search warrants or uh, other investigative warrants. And those are really only available if we're investigating a felony. A lot of the kind of corruption that's been alleged in City Hall uh, or that uh, the public knows about from media reports is under state law or under local law only a misdemeanor. And that means effectively most of this year for those categories of crimes, we've had no investigative tools whatsoever. And it's a, it's a real problem. So I appreciate the question and I am doing all I can and I know we need to do more to restore the public trust in government here in San Francisco. I want to read some more emails that are coming in here. Andrew writes, let's be honest here. D.A. Boudin is quickly getting a reputation as someone who doesn't go after the bad guys in pursuit of an agenda. That's why he is getting the criticism he's getting, whether it's firing a gang task force, understaffing the office, not pursuing criminals, targeting Asian Americans. The list goes on. Perhaps Chaser should rethink his agenda and its effects on him doing his actual job of putting bad guys behind bars before blaming others for what many believe to be legitimate criticism. Well, I, I pre yeah, I appreciate the, the question. And, and I know it's a reflection of a lot of anger and grief that people feel over the difficulties we face this year as a city. And certainly in light of this most recent tragedy, I don't think the characterization is fair or, or accurate. Um, we've been extremely proactive around cooperation, collaboration, and collective responsibility for protecting uh, the API community here in San Francisco. Um, we've expanded the number of Chinese language staff and our victim services team. We've taken historic steps to step up and support crime victims uh, in situations involving domestic violence and sexual assault in particular during the uh, pandemic. Uh, and we've also gone to great lengths to implement policies that actually use the limited resources we have in this budget crisis more effectively. For example, we've prioritize serious and violent crimes. We've moved homicide cases forward. We've managed to stay on top of our cases and our case loads, even though courts are largely shut down. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry if the perception is that um, I or the office doesn't care about public safety or that we're intentionally understaffing the office. But I can tell you for certainty that we have hired exactly as fast as the city allows us to. We fill every vacancy we have as soon as there's a budget approval to do it. And we're hiring high quality dedicated, hardworking staff who are committed to promoting public safety with smart, data-tested policies, empirical evidence, making difficult decisions, not with a crystal ball, 
but based on best practices and the best information we have available. Now, let me ask you about a hate crime that occurred in the Bayview back in February, which I'm sure you're familiar with because it did get a lot of attention. There was a young man who was collecting cans over there, and um, there was a racial slur and uh, actually an assault against uh, an Asian, an older Asian man uh, by the young man who was doing the can collecting. Uh, and this attack uh, included what I suppose uh, indeed came under the purview of being a hate crime since uh, there was a racial slur against the Asian elderly gentleman. That turned into a restorative justice, uh, actually, issue, I believe, did it not? Let, let me correct you on a couple uh, misconceptions there, Michael, because what you said is, is sadly, uh, be, you know, become a common mantra about that case. Let's get straight to the facts. The man who committed the robbery and assault was charged with robbery and assault and elder abuse. Those were criminal, file, criminal charges that we filed. Uh, a robbery is a strike. He was held in jail for a substantial period of time pending trial, and he is currently in compliance with all court orders last I checked. It is not a hate crime because the man who did the robbery didn't say anything in any way that was a racial slur or that suggested his robbery was racially motivated. The person who made the video that went viral did say racial slurs. He did say things that were deeply offensive to me and to everyone who shares San Francisco values. But being a racist or saying racist things and making a video of someone committing a crime is not itself a crime. In fact, it's protected by the First Amendment. We had no choice but to discharge his arrest when the evidence showed that all he did was make a video and express racist sentiments. I don't like it. I don't like what he did. If he were a, a, a good Samaritan, he would have intervened to prevent the robbery from occurring. But the law doesn't prohibit what he did. And we cannot criminally prosecute someone, no matter how distasteful their conduct or their words, for exercising their First Amendment rights. We did, however, because of the severity of the overall situation, refer his case to a restorative justice process. And that was at the request of the victim. The victim was very insistent and very clear that he did not want us to file criminal charges, even if we could have, against that man. With regard to the person who committed the robbery, he was charged with robbery, and he's still facing those charges today. As a supportive comment uh, for Chase Boudin from a listener named Aaron, who writes, Chase has done an incredible job. We cannot allow the narrative to shift back, shift back to the failed policies of tough-on-crime. There were countless individuals who weren't prosecuted by tough-on-crime administrations and went on to commit violent crime. None of those district attorneys were asked to account for those crimes. Why are we acting like this is different? Is it better than the previous tough-on-crime, reckless, and damaging policies that led to decades of harmful mass incarceration and intergenerational oppression through the criminal justice system? Yes, absolutely. And here's Drew in Oakland. Drew, join us. Yes, thank you so much, Michael. What an incredible show. Look, uh, I applaud the work that Chase Boudin is doing, which is let us talk about how do we have a process that includes the victims in, in this, in this uh, narrative. The Police Officers Association, and my, my observation of the San Francisco Police Officers Association, their mantra has been, let's just lock everybody up, let's criminalize everything, and so that will solve all our problems. Well, we've seen the result of that, right? It has not. And so in this case, we have to go to the person. The person, if he has an alcohol or drug issue, has to be willing to take on that challenge and deal with that. 
No DA, nobody in law enforcement can can address that. What are they going to do? Put bubbles around everybody and say, okay, you've been released. Now go out and not harm the world and you live in a bubble and you can't harm anybody. That's crazy. So I'd rather have people like uh, the DA now who's looking at how do we reduce the amount of people in jail for nonviolent crimes. And let's move upstream to talk about how society addressing the lack and equality. And why do some people, why are people poor? Why are people committing crimes? What are these crimes about? And how do we create opportunities and equalize our democracy in a way that says people are valuable and worth something and not should sit and ride in jail for nonviolent crime. That's my opinion. So All right. I thank you for your opinion, Drew. appreciate hearing from you. And uh, let me go to a comment from Denise and get the district attorney's response. Denise says, spend any time on next door and it's clear people feel under siege by break-ins and thefts from homes, garages, and mailboxes most of the time. When someone posts a description of one of those incidents, someone responds that Chase Boudin will not prosecute such crimes. I really appreciate the question uh, because it's it's something that I hear in community meetings and town halls and email with constituents on a regular basis. And I know that Nextdoor and Twitter uh, have really contributed to a sense uh, of insecurity in San Francisco this year. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity to respond head on to that question. Look, it's important that people be safe and it's important that people feel safe. Both things are important. The reality is that San Francisco has probably never been safer than it is right now. But I also know that people don't feel safe. Let me start with the first point, and then I'll uh, offer some views on why it is that Nextdoor, Twitter, and the, and the feeling many people have right now is inconsistent. If you look at the data, if you look at the police crime dashboard for 2020, it's on their website, it's publicly available, and this is based on crimes reported to the San Francisco Police Department. This is not uh, have, not data that my office produces or maintains. If you look at their data, it shows that in the year 2020, crime overall decreased in San Francisco by a historic 24.5%. That includes massive drops in auto burglaries, in uh, petty theft, in um, assaults, in robberies. Assaults and robberies being the two most common violent crimes in San Francisco. Historic double-digit drops in those categories of crime. Now, I want to be clear. I am not taking credit for those drops. We all know that the COVID epidemic and the drastic reshaping of daily life in our city is what primarily accounts for those drops. And by the same token, we know that certain categories of crime have increased. Things like burglary, residential and commercial. Things like motor vehicle theft went up and things like discharge of firearms. Now, those categories of crime went up in big cities all across the country without regard to who the police chief is, without regard to the local politics of the district attorney or the police union. These are national trends. And but I ask you, I have to ask you here, though, because actually it's about 46 percent surge in home and commercial burglaries just this year. Uh, how much of that is driven by the pandemic and how much of it is driven by chronic offenders? I think what we're seeing is, look, when I was on the campaign trail, and you'll remember this from last year, Michael, because I was on your show uh, during the campaign, as were uh, other candidates. We talked about these issues together at length uh, with you multiple times. And one of the issues that was front and center for most uh, San Francisco voters concerned about public safety issues was auto burglaries. Auto burglaries dropped by about 40 percent this year, I should say last year. So the issue that folks were concerned about dropped. We had a decrease in auto burglary and other theft crimes 
from, um, uh, you know, of about, let me just do the math in my head here, of about 17,000 incidents, a 17,000 decrease in reported burglaries and thefts. Now, some of the people who in 2019 committed those auto burglaries that were a, a, a critical issue in the, in the DA campaign earn their living off property crime. And with fewer opportunities to break into tourist cars, with fewer opportunities to walk into stores and businesses and shoplift, some of those people resorted to going inside the same way that all of us have gone inside during the pandemic. And so, yes, we did see an increase in other kinds of burglaries. We saw an increase of about 2,000 more burglaries. So we, we saw a decrease of 40% in larceny theft crimes, which had been the single most important category. And we saw an increase in uh, burglaries. And we are working closely with the police department to figure out ways to effectively respond. I had a, a Facebook Live event. We do it every Wednesday. Excuse me, we do a Facebook Live every Wednesday. And the last one we did before the holidays was with Chief Scott of the San Francisco Police Department. And we talked about this issue. And we talked about the ways in which we have to work together. He expressed frustration, as your question suggests, Michael, with the idea that there may be chronic offenders. And uh, he's urging our office to do more to try and uh, address people who are, are recidivists or repeat offenders in, in that way. Um, and I pointed out uh, that the police clearance rates for burglaries are only in the range of 11%, meaning about 90% of people, 89% of reported burglaries never even result in an arrest. And of course, I can't prosecute a case if the police don't make arrests. Now the, so the, we're uh, working chronic together offending to numbers, bring those numbers up. Chronic offending numbers have gone up actually, uh, unfortunately. And I wanna ask you about your ongoing sense of not only working with Chief Scott, but working with the police since you did bring homicide charges against a police officer. And as we've said, the police union and you seem to be at loggerheads, to put it mildly. And we want to get more callers on and so forth, but we're coming up on a break. We'll be back shortly. We're talking again with Chase Boudin, who is District Attorney of San Francisco. You're listening to Forum on KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. Our guest is District Attorney Chase Boudin, District Attorney of San Francisco. And if you'd like to join us in this program, the toll-free number to do so is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email us, forum at kqed.org. Uh, let me get a caller on here before I go back to some questions that I wanted to raise with the District Attorney. I said I wanted to ask him about his ongoing sense of uh, how he's working with the police, and also talk about cash bail, many, many other things to talk about uh, with uh, the district attorney. But I want to get Steve on. Steve, thanks for waiting. You're on. Uh, you're welcome, uh, Michael. Thank you uh, very much for your time, and uh, thank you as well, DA Boudin. Uh, the question really is, you've addressed some of these points already, uh, 
since I first dialed in about um, the felonies, particularly involving um, residential burglaries, which I understand that, that you do want to go after the serious criminals, but it seems like there are fewer victims of serious crime. And as you pointed out, far more victims of um, what you would consider less serious crimes, such as home burglaries, although that that's certainly makes citizens feel far less safe. And perhaps that's why things like Twitter and Nextdoor are uh, lighting up with these types of fears. Um, the police tell me, and I am a crime victim, that your office, despite video evidence, paper trails, and cooperating witnesses, um, will not prosecute a repeat offender of a fe- uh, someone who has committed another felony because your office says it's too expensive, despite the fact that as taxpayers, um, we seem to be supporting exactly these types of prosecutions. How would you answer that? Because there is, seems to be there's no deterrent to um, committing crimes now because the criminals feel they will never be prosecuted. Thank you for the question, Steve. Mr. District Attorney. Thank you for the question, Steve. And I'm so sorry to hear that you were a victim of crime. And I want to make it very clear that my victim services team is available to support crime victims, uh, especially of violent and serious crimes, regardless of whether or not police make an arrest or we're able to prosecute. But what you were told, Steve, what you were told by those, whoever that police officer was who told you that, they were lying to you. That was a lie. It was a bold-faced lie. I want to be clear, and I'm choosing my words carefully. It was a lie. We prosecute those cases every single day. And as a matter of fact, residential burglaries are a serious crime. It's a crime that I take very seriously. It's a strike. It's a case that carries a maximum punishment of up to six years in state prison. If we are given evidence from police sufficient to prove a case to a jury, we will file it and we will prosecute it. Having video evidence in a year where every single person is wearing a mask may not be adequate to prove who committed the burglary. Police may believe they know who did it, but it's up to my lawyers to prove to a jury of all of you listening beyond any reasonable doubt who did what and what their intent was when they broke in and stole something. That's the burden we have. And we meet it in cases all the time. And we prosecute those cases all the time. As a matter of fact, police have presented us with almost exactly the same number of burglary cases that they presented us with last year, despite, as uh, as you said, Michael, a, a surge in burglaries. And our charging rates for those cases are similar, even though, even though the courts have largely been shut down and we have not been able to conduct even a single jury trial uh, in the entire fourth quarter and only two in the third quarter of this year. We've continued prosecuting those cases. We will continue prosecuting them. And it is tremendously damaging to our ability to do our job or to work with the police when they lie to crime victims. So how would you characterize your relationship with the police? I mean, it's been a lot of antipathy and certainly charges against uh, former and current San Francisco Police Department officers, uh, as you said, have certainly not gone against the police union and Tony Montoya. And that includes a charge of homicide against a former San Francisco police officer. There's a great deal of antipathy there. I was elected on a very transparent and clear platform to enforce the law equally and to fight for racial justice and equity in our criminal justice system, to focus resources on root causes of crime so that we can break the revolving door uh, that has come to so epitomize 
the failed American approach to criminal justice from coast to coast. And I have followed through on my commitments, despite the obstacles and despite the real challenges that both 2020 and the entrenched bureaucracy in the uh, criminal justice system and the attacks from people like Tony Montoya have put in our path. Uh, I think the district attorney's office has a tremendous amount to be proud of this year. We responded uh, aggressively and with leadership in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and a uh, social justice and, and racial justice movement, unlike any this country has ever seen. And we've played a leadership role in it reimagining how we can promote public safety and support victims of crime, while also decreasing our reliance on racist policies that have destroyed families and communities and bankrupted local governments. But when individual police officers tell lies, like we don't prosecute, that does damage to our ability to keep San Franciscans safe. And it makes people like Steve feel unsafe. Here are the numbers. In 2020, we filed over 72% of the residential burglary charges the police brought us. It means we filed a criminal case, a new criminal case in over 72% of those charges. But here's the problem. They only presented us with 285 possible cases to charge out of the 7,391 burglaries reported to the police. So if 90% of people who commit that crime aren't arrested, then Steve's right. People don't feel like there's a deterrent. We need to support the police in doing a more effective job on the front end. And instead of having individual officers point the finger at, at me or my office, I'd love to work collaboratively, collaboratively with them. Chief Scott and I have a great relationship. We talk all the time on the phone. Uh, we have regular meetings. Uh, before COVID hit, we had sit-down meetings, um, and he came on my Facebook Live, as I said, right before the holidays. If we could have that same level of collaboration and cooperation and collective responsibility all the way up and down the line, I think uh, San Franciscans would not only feel safer, but they'd be safer. And let me bring another caller on. That's you, Gilbert. Thank you for waiting. Join us. Hi. First, uh, my name is Gilbert, and uh, I grew, I've grown up here. I'm a native San Franciscan, and I want to congratulate uh, or thank Chelsea Bodine for his courage. Uh, my question is, how can we as a public hold law enforcement accountable when they use excessive force against us, when the police officers association do everything possible not to be held accountable? It's a huge challenge. And, you know, I know Michael mentioned earlier that um, we filed what I believe to be the first ever homicide charges against a San Francisco police department officer while they were on duty for a killing while they were on duty. And in this instance, it was an unarmed black man. And I want to be really clear. I don't celebrate filing those criminal charges. Filing homicide charges is a very serious decision, whether it's a police officer or whether it's somebody else. And we make that decision after a careful and exhaustive review of all of the evidence, but we have to have equal enforcement of the law. We have to have a system in which no one is above the law, regardless of their race or their wealth or the uniform they wear to work. And the reason that the POA has been attacking me since even before I was elected, the reason that the kinds of lies that were told to Steve were being told to residents and to crime victims even before I took office, is because of that fear of equal enforcement of the law. The leadership in the POA is used to impunity. They want impunity and they don't want transparency or sunshine on the small minority of officers who engage in excessive force or explicitly racist and discriminatory conduct. 
The criminal justice system and public safety depend on having trust between the communities and the law enforcement agencies that have sworn to serve and protect them. And we will never have that trust until everyone knows that if you commit a crime, you will be treated equally regardless of your job title. Can I ask you if the POA is lying when it says that there have been sweetheart deals cut for career criminals behind closed doors? That's a tremendously subjective uh, uh, statement. So that may be their true opinion. Um, it's certainly not behind closed doors. You know, our court business is conducted in open court. There are transcripts of everything we do in open court. So that part of it is a is a bold-faced lie. What I can tell you is uh, the POA would obviously like to see people sent to prison for life, even for, uh, you know, really trivial offenses like shoplifting. I mean, it's, it's, it's shameful. And they're trying to exploit tragedy and fear to um, roll back the reforms that are wildly popular across the state and here in San Francisco, reforms that are long overdue in terms of racial justice and racial equity, and reforms that empirically have been shown to promote public safety. They are relying on fear mongering. They are relying on dishonesty and manipulation in order to go backwards in time to an era where state and local budgets were almost, uh, I don't want want to go so far as to say exclusively, but dominated by uh, expenditures for prisons, for jails, for militarized police, instead of investments in public health in drug treatment, in safe consumption sites, in the kinds of things that San Francisco and good science and data tell us we need to promote public safety. And that's simply not good policy, but it's effective fear-mongering. And Here's sadly, a good idea, from a listener, good idea from a listener named Wendy who emails and says, since we hear these lies from the police that Boudin doesn't prosecute these cases, can we please have a public forum on Zoom with both the police chief and Boudin so we can get to the bottom of this? As you said earlier, you did uh, have a public Facebook uh, meeting that occurred with Chief Scott. I'll bring another caller on here, though. Let me go to Melanie, who's been waiting patiently. Melanie, thank you for waiting. Sure, my pleasure. Um, my name is Melanie. I'm a social worker in San Francisco. And I don't think we anyone can disagree with DA Boudin's goals of decarceration, ending mass incarceration, creating equity, putting justice back in the criminal justice system. I think those are goals that we are all behind um, in the Bay Area. My question is more about the short term. So those longer term goals of equity are great and they're important. But in the short term, the tenderloin looks awful. South of market looks awful. What can we do while we're looking at things like increasing drug treatment beds, increasing mental health support in the city, things that have to happen in order for the system to heal? What can we do in the interim so that people in the tenderloin aren't posting on next door 24 hours a day about people yelling and feces and throwing things and feeling unsafe and packages stolen. Thank you for the question, Melanie, Mr. District Attorney. Thank you for your work as a social worker, Melanie, and thank you for the question. Look, the Tenderloin has been a very, very serious problem, a tragic one. It's the neighborhood that's the most diverse in all of San Francisco. It's also the neighborhood with the highest concentration of school-aged children. And to see the state of affairs in the Tenderloin is really devastating. Um, We need a more effective approach. And we cannot continue to recycle the same failed policies from the war on drugs. Now, to be clear, I have filed felony criminal charges 
in about 78% of the drug sales or possession for sales cases police have brought me this year. We are continuing to file those charges, even though we know they haven't worked in the past and we don't expect them to solve the problems today. Here's what we need to be effective in communities like the Tenderloin. First, safe consumption sites to prevent the horrific number of overdoses from drugs like fentanyl. Second, treatment on demand so that when people who are struggling with and battling addiction are trying to get sober or trying to get clean and turn their lives around and get off the street and on their feet, they have somewhere to go to get help. Right now in San Francisco, it is easier to get high than it is to get help. And it doesn't matter how many felony criminal charges we file. As long as that continues to be true, the tenderloin is not going to change. We have filed charges. We've seen the U.S. attorney deport people involved in low-level drug sales, and none of it has changed the situation on the streets. What will change it is housing, treatment, and safe consumption sites. Again, we're talking to Chase Boudin, San Francisco District Attorney. Need to talk about ending cash bail. Uh, what do you think the effect it's having? Michael, this was a key issue for me for many years, as you know. Uh, I think the first time I came on your show, maybe in 2015 or so, was to talk about cash bail. Um, cash bail, for folks who are not familiar with it, is a system really unique to the United States and Philippines, where we have a for-profit private industry that basically buys people out of jail uh, for a 10% non-refundable fee. And the way it works is this, you get arrested, and if you've got money, you can buy your way out of jail, um, usually through one of these for-profit companies, um, immediately. If you have the money, you're out immediately. And if you don't have the money, you languish behind bars. And there's two fundamental problems with the cash bail system. First, it undermines public safety by allowing people, even people who are dangerous, to buy their way out and potentially go on to commit more crimes or harass victims. Second, it undermines the promise of equal protection under law. Let me talk about the first one first and the second one second. So um, Marcy's Law, the Victim's Bill of Rights in California was named after a woman named Marcy, a victim of a domestic violence murder. The man who murdered Marcy was wealthy and he was able to bail out while pending trial and show up at her funeral and harass her family. That is not good public policy. The fact that that man was wealthy should not have allowed him or anyone else who presents a danger to the community to buy their way out of jail when they are facing serious charges like domestic violence murder. Now, on the other hand, you've got people charged, sometimes incorrectly, with things like shoplifting or um, drug sales. And when you're charged with a nonviolent crime and you have a presumption of innocence and you don't present a demonstrated public safety risk, the fact that you're poor cannot, in a system governed by equal protection, cannot mean you languish behind bars while you await a trial. So when we ended money bail, what we did was we decided to replace a wealth-based system with a risk-based system. When my team of attorneys look at a case and look at an individual person accused of a crime's history and circumstances and believe there are no conditions that can protect the public with that person on the streets, we ask the court to detain them. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are. And if we look at someone and believe that it's consistent with public safety for them to be released, consistent with the constitutional protections and due process to which we're all entitled, then we ask the court to release them on appropriate conditions, conditions that we believe are adequate to keep the public safe and ensure that the person obeys the law while the case is pending. It's a system that 
in some ways, the entire state had to put into effect in response to COVID-19. Um, we saw a order come out of the Judicial Council back in April, basically setting all nonviolent offenses at zero bail, meaning people would get released no matter how wealthy or poor they were, just the same way they would as a billionaire. And what we saw, as in San Francisco, is that most categories of crime, crime overall, went down. And people continued to show up to court. And people continued to do what they were told by the judges, for the most part. Of course, there are always going to be exceptions, and none of us have a crystal ball to identify exactly where those exceptions will be. Alas, but, no crystal ball. And also, only seconds left here, and I promise at the beginning I wanted to have you give, give an opportunity to talk about some of the real innovations and positive things that have come out of this first year that you've held office. Uh, I would refer listeners to your Twitter feed because there's a list of things. It's a catalog, an impressive catalog. But let me just ask you quickly with seconds left, what are you most proud of in your first year? Michael, I think the office has a tremendous amount to be proud of. And I want to just say um, I'm proud of my team. I'm proud of the work that we've done to support crime victims. Uh, particularly domestic violence victims, to provide them with housing. I'm proud of the fact that we've avoided a outbreak of COVID-19 in the jails, which we've seen happen all across the country, and that we've been able to work collaboratively with um, city government and with law enforcement agencies, even in the face of tragedy, of uh, finger pointing, and of real obstacles from some folks like the POA. I think we have a lot to be proud of. Um, and I think um, you know, we never expected to solve the problems in our first year, and we've got three years ahead, and I look forward to working to make San Francisco safer for everyone. Well, we'll leave it there, and uh, I wish you the best in terms of uh, your office and finding justice. Thank you, Chase Boudin. Thank you, our listeners. I'm Michael Krasny. Stay safe. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.